0: This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with Scott Martin Kosofsky. He's a book composer, typographer, and author of The Book of Customs, a complete handbook for the Jewish year. I spoke with him on November 2nd, 2004, from the studios of APM in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was in the studios of WGBH in Boston, Massachusetts. This interview is included in our show, Legends to Live By. Download the MP3 of the produced show at onbeing.org. Now, are you in Boston, based in Boston? I am. Okay.
1: I am in Cambridge, yes. So I actually live just minutes away from this uh, radio station. Okay.
0: I. I think we will be at, we will be on in Boston one of these days, but we're not there yet. I hope
1: so. Yes. I, it's the only big market in which you do not play, yeah. and that's well, really a pity.
0: I know. I know. And we're, yeah. we're in conversation. I think but we will you, rectify you know it. How,
1: Well, you know how squeamish <laughs> we are about public religion here.
0: Well, I know. I mean, there's so little religion in Boston, so it really would be insignificant, wouldn't it?
1: Irrelevant. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I mean, there's so many. We, we,
1: we keep it at home where oh, it belongs. Yeah,
0: that's right. I mean I think uh I think it feel it feels frightening to a lot of um, public radio stations to take the subject on because it can be so explosive, but you know, one thing I say is that's that's the very reason that we must find new ways to talk about it. Oh, absolutely. Bring these and of voices course. constructively into dialogue.
1: Yes. Uh, Ellen Kushner's show originates from this very station, in oh. fact, which is also about religion. Really? Uh, yeah. Well, what's oh, it? But Ellen Sound Kushner's. Spirit. I thought. Oh, you know. Yeah. No,
0: I know that. I thought you were. Um, I was thinking Lawrence Kushner, who did the foreword oh, to your no. book, who I interviewed. No. <laughs> so. Okay. Yes, I heard I that. I does he have a that. radio show? I didn't know. <laughs> um,
1: no, no. Uh, he used to live around here yeah, years ago. Yeah. No, and, I know Ellen Kushner. Yes.
0: Yeah.
1: Yes, I heard Larry Kushner's, um, I heard the bit. the other, I just heard it the other day. I yeah. downloaded it. It was lovely. It was, it was a very so good much jump. fun.
0: Yeah. Yes, so you're at DPH. I wasn't sure where we were interviewing you from. I okay. am, yes. Okay.
1: Yes, chaos is set in at WBUR. It's also very hard to park there.
0: <laughs> well, then I'm glad we didn't send you there. <laughs> yes, the empire has <laughs> fallen. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Now, Mitch is making all kinds of serious faces, but are, how are we doing? Do we need to keep, do we, do you need, I know. Do you need some small talk for getting levels for him? Tell me, um, well, how do you, how do people refer to you as Scott, Scott Martin?
1: Scott, okay, just Scott. Good.
0: Now, um, why don't you tell me something, I don't want to have a meaningful conversation yet, so tell me something mundane like, have you had lunch yet?
1: Well, I have indeed, and I voted as well. Oh,
0: good! Congratulations.
1: Thank you. I hope you have too.
0: Not yet. After If they this. haven't blockaded after the. After this. Um,
1: uh, that's right. You are as in a swing state. Yeah.
0: Aren't you? Yeah.
1: Oh my. Yeah. How have the mighty fallen? Yeah. I it's, it's, <laughs> I, I yeah. It was solid Democrat for so long. The farm labor. Party. I
0: know the DFL. Yeah. It's yeah. a great tradition. Almost, almost a socialist tradition. Yes, yes. Uh, in the best old tr- sense of that. But
1: well, I heard Hubert Humphrey speak at the nineteen sixty four convention <laughs> in Atlantic City, New Jersey, oh. when I was eleven years old. <laughs> uh, my my cousin, uh, my father's first cousin, was. Uh, The congressman from um, Philadelphia and and we had tickets and it was remarkable. And I felt in the middle of politics as if, well, I thought everyone was in the middle of politics Mm -hmm. in the same way. And uh, I remember being a little kid, trampled, almost trampled to death by the, the hordes of, what of the Democrats from the Solid (laughs) South, as it was once called back then. Oh, those the well, that was the beginning (laughs) of the end, in fact.
0: Yeah. Well, tell me, you know, I want to actually, it's fine that we're in your childhood, because I I wanted to start with you where I start with just about everyone, whatever we're talking about, to hear a little bit about the religious background of your life. Were you raised in a devout home?
1: No, I wasn't. In fact, it was a resolutely non-devout home, but it was um, nonetheless, it had its own way of observance. And um, I was the youngest, I was the only child. Of youngest children, so hmm. I grew up around old people, people who had been who had um, come from Russia in the early part of the 20th century, hmm. and uh, because I was a good talker, I, um, you know, I spoke to them in the language that they spoke, which was Yiddish. Hmm. So there was this very strong Yiddish culture in the house, uh, and though um, uh, my grandmothers kept two sets of dishes and observed all of the major dietary laws. They had a liberal bent. Uh, in other words, my grandmother loved to have lobster but wouldn't permit it in her home. So it was, uh, you know, they, they were um, um, you know, a typically um, semi-assimilated family. And where parents, was this? Where were you growing up? Philadelphia. Right. Philadelphia. Right. And I attended a three-day-a-week conservative Hebrew school in the seven years prior, six years prior to my bar mitzvah. And uh, I i was, um, I, well, I had a great hard time of it, actually. I, I thought that it was, um, you know, a terrible place to spend my time. Uh, my interests were in music and, and just very, um, well, I mean, it was my whole life was in music. And I had this early career in music. Hmm. And uh, so it was... Um, um, it was a great difficulty. But also, I think that my difficulty came from the fact that I grew up in the years after the Holocaust, and um, which was a uh, an almost constant point of reference and topic right. of conversation. And I was smart, which made it all the more difficult. I, I thought... Well, you know, I heard relatives say that history always repeats itself. I had heard yeah. that there were even anti-Semites in America, though I had never seen one and and or even heard of one directly. Uh, I, I thought that it was only a matter of time before we would be just all rounded up and carted away. Really? And so it was very, very fearful. And there was, um, in the 50s, the early 50s, mid-50s, it was during that period when um, the public discussion of the Holocaust was just beginning. It wasn't until the late fifties that it became part of a public discourse, and in fact, even an American Jewish discourse, in a in a serious way. So there was no comfort; there was nothing to be yeah. had. You couldn't voice anything, because uh, there was no explanation. So I thought, well, my goodness, you know, here and, and as I got um, toward my teen years, my interest being in Early music, what's called early music, was was so uh, involved that uh, you know I was very involved uh, with um, you know surrounded by Christian liturgy, and right. I thought that was right. sort of my you know that I could yeah. recite the Mass by heart, which I had learned, of course, through music through osmosis. Mm. I thought that well, this was my my shield, you know, when when they come to Cardiff away. But by that time, of course, I, my understanding had changed and and it become more sophisticated, and and so on. So uh, it was—I um, uh, had led a, a, th- a, a very Jewish-identified but rather non-observant life until um, uh, I began, as I tell the story in the—is um, um, this small talk, by the way? No, no, uh, this no, no. sounds fairly serious.
0: It's, it's, yeah. No, this is—no, uh, this is not small talk. We're there. We're in it. But oh, good. But it is right. a real conversation, and, and we're not—we don't have time constraints, and we're not live, so we actually get to talk, and I get to let you— Yes. I love all this detail, so just keep going. Uh,
1: Let me, uh, I'll continue. Okay. Um, uh, So it wasn't until, as I explained in the introduction to the book, um, 15 years ago, uh, when I was hired to work on my first Jewish project, uh, which was the Harvard Hillel Sabbath Mm songbook, and which was the occasion on which I found these remarkable woodcuts that led me to the old Jewish customs books, that I began an involvement with Judaism as, as an adult. And uh, like a lot of good Jewish stories, this one begins with Christmas, actually, and and uh, which I guess is sort of a Jewish story in its own right, uh, if you uh, interpret it that way.
0: Um,
1: I, I worked on a book in the mid-1980s called The Christmas Revels Songbook. And I, I don't know if you know about The Christmas Revels, but it's a great Christmas theatrical that was invented by a remarkable man named John Langstaff. And he created it, in fact, exactly 50 years ago. Was
0: it in America? A, it sounds like it's oh yes, in yeah.
1: well, well, indeed, it has an English... It's a very strong English connection. Mm-hmm. Um, it was first given at town hall... And it was, in a way, a reflection of, of uh, uh, Mr. Langstaff's career uh, as a singer in this country and for many years as a radio host, of, of a television host, of a program called Let's Make Music, which was very popular on the BBC. Mm-hmm. And it was reintroducing English children to their own musical customs, the great traditional folk song literature, Mm. in which uh, uh, Jack, as he's called, Jack Langstaff, had become greatly involved. And um, uh, after this show was produced at Town Hall, there was uh, an NBC Christmas special made of it, I think in 1955 or 56, and it played for a number of years. And um, many years later, in the early 70s, uh, Jack's daughter, Carol Langstaff, had um, had urged her father to revive this marvelous show, uh, which was a, a very non-christological, somewhat pagan-oriented <laughs> show. It's celebrating the winter solstice, mm-hmm. and 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 Christmas per se is treated well, somewhat obliquely, sort of as part of a of, of a larger tradition of mankind. And um, indeed, in Cambridge, Massachusetts, my my own town, they revived this show and it has been playing ever since and it there are companies that produce this uh, in many parts of the country uh washington dc new york city <laughs> oakland california uh, and, um, and perhaps minnesota i don't know but it was because of this book that i produced for them the christmas revel songbook uh that i was asked later to produce the harvard hillel sabbath oh, songbook and okay. they came to me because <laughs> They loved that songbook, and they wanted something rather like it, except of course um, Jewish, and uh, naturally directed toward the Sabbath. And um, uh, this was how it began. It's a lovely songbook, it's still in print. And it's illustrated with wonderful woodcuts from the 16th and 17th centuries. Mm. And um, the sponsors at Harvard Hillel had hoped that perhaps there were Jewish equivalents of these things. And I I was not very encouraging. Uh, I thought that given the Jewish restriction against graven images, which sometimes has been very literally interpreted at Mm -hmm. various times, uh, 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 sometimes creating Judaism as a kind of an iconic culture, a culture really without much of a visual sensibility, though this is varied. Mm -hmm. it has swung back and forth over the centuries. Um, uh, I thought that, well, maybe I'll find something, but perhaps not. So I went to the wonderful old Jewish encyclopedia, uh, which was the first great flowering of American Jewish scholarship. It's a remarkable set of volumes. When was it written?
0: uh, Uh, 1901 was Uh the,
1: the first volumes. And uh, it's a terrific book, and sure enough, what I found there was a wonderful woodcut of uh, a woman lighting the Sabbath lamp, and it's on the cover of this book mm. uh, of my new book of customs and uh, it is uh, I found that it was had been published. In a book it said Sefer Minhagim, Amsterdam, 1645. And at the time I was such a fallen Jew that I only knew that the word safer meant book. And the other word, though it was familiar, I, I had to go and look it up, and I found out that it indeed means customs. And what I had stumbled upon was the the book of customs. Um, So as chance would have it, and um, I went to the Harvard libraries and found that, indeed, they had a number of books by that name and some very interesting ones on microfilm, including this Amsterdam 1645 example. Mm. And I was utterly charmed. This was, you know, love at first sight because what I had in my hands was something I had never seen before, a compact guide to the Jewish year with over 40 illustrations uh, of the main holidays and rituals. And I knew all this because um, even though my Hebrew was rather faulty, uh, I realized the book was written in Yiddish. It was in the-, oh, the which did the... take
0: you back to your own roots also. Indeed, uh-huh. and it
1: was in Yiddish in a very strange kind of alphabet, but uh, as a typographer, of course, I get used to odd alphabets rather easily, <laughs> and I, I could read enough of it to know that, of course, that it was in Yiddish and actually make sense of some of it. And I it had these, um, beside the, the woodcuts that describe the principal, uh, holidays and rituals of the year. Uh, it also had 12 woodcuts showing the zodiac and the seasons of farm life. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, well, maybe it served also as a kind of Jewish farmer's almanac. Right, yeah. uh, that's not exactly the case. <clears throat> uh, but uh, it, 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 the reference it makes, of course, is to uh, the seasonal um well, seasonal references to scriptural passages, mm-hmm. and uh, so it's more related to the farm life of the Holy Land than it is to any place where Jews were living at the time. Mm. And, and, and how
0: did people use it when when this was uh, when this book was part of Jewish lives, normal Jewish lives?
1: Well, uh, it was quite typical that um, Jewish education at even the lowest level, involved a great deal of memorization, so that a young boy and often girls to a rather significant degree would be taught the principal prayers and blessings, and they would know these by memory, and many would learn a great deal of Bible by memory. So, um, But what they needed was some Orderly way of doing the right thing, and these books, written in the vernacular as they were, uh, enabled people to use them as a guide, uh, which supplemented what they knew from the uh, from the Bible and from uh, the liturgy.
0: Mm -hmm. I think you also now tell me if this is right that the first edition, the earliest edition, was of this was written. In the 14th century, published a little later, but written in the in in a time of tragedy and loss, as you write, in the aftermath of the Black Death, is that yes,
1: that that's right. Um, there were t- in the era of of the Black Death in the mid 14th century. Mm-hmm. There were created a number of Jewish customs books because it was believed that by writing down the customs of a community, that somehow the community would survive. Mm-hmm. And this is very typical of Jewish history in which faith in the written word was so great that knowing that all all might perish, somehow or other the written word would survive. And, of course, it's the lesson of history that this is indeed true. Uh, The great buildings come and go, but um, uh, the word somehow remains somewhere preserved. (laughs) And uh, one of these books, one of these customs books, was written by a Hungarian rabbi, Isaac Tiernow. And uh, it was this work of his that had circulated in manuscript, became the basis for the Yiddish customs books that followed in print in the end of the 16th century, in 1590. And uh, it was written in Hebrew, Tiernell's text, but in fact it was written in a way that laymen could if they knew any Hebrew, they could understand it. It seemed to be um, not written for experts, which is so was so often the case right. with um, Jewish literature of this sort.
0: It seems to me also I mean something that that <clears throat> sorry that strikes me that that behind this entire work and the way people used it is such a fundamental tenet of Jewish faith and Jewish life but um But it is particular to Judaism. It's not necessarily something that people outside Judaism understand intuitively, and that is this equation of being Jewish as doing good, right? That's right. right? And you have on the front, uh, let's see, somewhere you have, oh, you have the sort of the cover or an advertisement for a Venetian edition of this in 1593. Yes, yes, yes. And one of the phrases is, laws explained well, so you will know how to live like a good person.
1: (laughs) Yes, that's right. Live like a good person and do the right thing. And this is very important because it is a basic tenet of of Judaism that um, what you believe follows only after what you do. So uh, Judaism is very much about doing God's commandments and doing the right thing uh, rather than believing a specific credo. And as you know, the credo of Judaism is a rather simple one. It's um, um, Hear, O Israel, the mm-hmm. Lord our God is one. This is, this is it. Of course, um, uh, there, are, um, uh, there were scholars later on who developed credos of another more de- involved kind. But there's nothing in Judaism that's the equivalent, for example, of the uh, credo of the Latin Mass.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then how do you understand, as you got into this, why did this custom book die out? Why did they stop being updated and printed and used? And when did that happen? How?
1: By the end of the 18th century, the Ashkenazic Jewish world, that is the um, the world based in the, uh, in, for whom the vernacular language was Yiddish, a, a kind of middle-high German mixed with Hebrew and other local languages, uh, had splintered by this time. And what one had was the rise of Hasidism in the early 18th century and a rather vehement reaction amongst the traditional orthodoxy. And these were people who were known as the Mitnagdim. And this is the beginning of a rift which, in some ways, never healed. uh, It also was uh, drifted into the period of the European Enlightenment and with which came a Jewish Enlightenment Mm -hmm. and from which arose reformed Judaism in the beginning of the 19th century. And we see already by the end of the 18th century in the writings of Moses Mendelssohn all of the makings of this reform. and. as this went on, it was really no longer possible to address all of Ashkenaz as that title page of the fifteen ninety three Venice Venice edition mm-hmm. uh, so uh, enticingly advertises. Um, but I wondered whether that was indeed true, right. uh, because uh, because indeed it is. Um, there is much greater common ground in. Uh, all Jewish denominations, then there are differences, and uh, if I were a rabbi, well ensconced in the particulars of my denomination, I might say, well, indeed, these things are gigantic; they're irreconcilable. But in, as an onlooker, as someone who has stood uh, slightly on the sidelines, I it appears not to be so big, because after all, it's not as if one group is reading the Torah and someone else is reading another group reading the Lord of the Rings. Uh, Indeed, it's all based in the same thing. And I thought that uh, the strategy that I would take in reviving this customs book is to um, not ignore the particularity of denominationalism, but to incorporate it so that in the in the the way the book is laid out is that the central panel of text describes primarily a kind of baseline of of traditional Judaism, what we call orthodoxy. Right. And uh, but
0: what is it that you say? You say you address this in the book early on that you've decided not to ignore d- denominational differences, but but and you say something about if this is a cafeteria, if this yes. is a cafeteria religion. Uh, yes.
1: Yes, it's the approach of including many different aspects of denominations is often uh, referred to quite disparagingly as cafeteria religion. And I said, well, if it is a cafeteria, it's at least a cafeteria that serves all the traditional main courses, (laughs) and in fact, old and new side dishes as well. (laughs) So uh, if I could be forgiven the metaphor, uh, there is in fact the sense that um, um, the particular The particularity of denominationalism is not as greatly different as is sometimes made out. What is different, however, is the sociology of different groups, the the political and economic and uh, outlook of of groups. Uh, These are the ways society breaks down, of course, in general.
0: Mm-hmm. But you're saying that for you, the the differences are more pronounced sociologically than in terms of the customs and this this tradition of the custom book, which you were recreating for the 21st century.
1: Um, I suppose one could say that, mm. and um, I I would modify that by okay. by adding that, um, I think that. There, it, it, it's clear that many aspects of Jewish custom and of observance are less observed in the more liberal congregations, especially in Reform Judaism, uh, than they are in traditional orthodoxy. And in fact, some of the things that I found most touching and remarkable about uh, uh, the traditional sphere of Jewish observance were in the very things that um, the liberal denominations had left behind over the years. But Mm. I must say, in their defense, that they have recently rediscovered. uh, A a very good example of this is the most tragic and somber day of the Jewish year, Tishbav. Uh, This is Uh, the ninth day of the month of of, and this is the day on which the temple was destroyed, Solomon's temple. It's also the day, by tradition, that Herod's temple, the second temple, was destroyed. And then, by uh, various acts of 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 uh, confluence and chance and and ratiocination, um, many other tragedies took place as well, including the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in 1492, and the list goes on and on. But the liturgy of this day is one of the deepest tragedy. It's when the Book of Lamentations is read. Mm. And as if that weren't enough, there's a lot of of, of uh, other prophetic works read at, around that time. And the nine days leading up to Tishbav are nine very dark days in which the traditional custom is not to wash or shave or anything. And it's a terrible time. And... Um, this had been abandoned by early reform Judaism. Uh, it just it had been let go as being anachronistic. That we no the claim being we're no longer interested in the rebuilding of the temple. That's past. Uh, the temple is within us, and that um, uh, we we really have to find our sense of rebuilding within. A, a very noble and laudable thought, but indeed. What is missing in that is the sense that in the liturgies regarding the destruction of the temple of the, the first temple, that this is about our own misdoings and sin, and this is the great fire and brimstone liturgy. So the conf- when one is missing this, one is missing a uh, uh, a liturgy of one's own. Sinfulness and the opportunity of of, um, of repentance and of acknowledgement, so hmm. that um, it, it's, a, a and, bit of a balance is lost.
0: Yeah, and uh, yes. and it sounds to me like perhaps for you that this was an observance that you personally rediscovered in the process of putting this book together. Is that right?
1: yes i i I thought that this was um this for me was a very moving experience. I never thought I would think m- that it would mean much to me in fact, knowing that I would have to confront it gave me a bit of pause. I thought, mm-hmm. oh goodness, how could I of all people a liberal like me? how could I find meaning in this? <clears throat> sure enough. I thought uh you know i'm i'm as uh, as capable of misdeed as the next person, and for that reason, this look within was i i thought was very very valuable
0: so uh, i'm I'm also hearing something that I also believe is is just fundamental in Jewish tradition and quite mysterious, and that is that the remembrance the importance of remembrance, which is also a an act of reliving, right? And as you said, the temple is within us. But you're sort of saying, I mean, that the that in in taking the memory more seriously and observing it more seriously, you're also drawing out the deepest meaning of that event. Is that?
1: Yes. It's you know there are times in which we are commanded. I believe it's six times in the Torah uh, that we're commanded to remember. It's it's the word zakhor. Uh, we're commanded by God to remember this. And amongst the things we remember in that way are the Passover. The Passover is, is mm-hmm. you know, the, the 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 absolute basis of, of remembrance. That you but were there once are other a slave things. in Egypt. That's exactly yes, right. Not we just were your once ancestors. slaves. Yes. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that this is made a personal thing. Uh, but um, Remembrance is a curious thing, and I found that, um, re- that that commandment to remember is a wonderful way of dealing with what you might call the difficult texts of the Bible. Uh, there are episodes in which one finds rather ghastly things that um, you don't know what to do with. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in many books about Judaism, they are kind of either brushed under the rug, gotten through as quickly as possible, or simply ignored. And some of these occur in the uh, annual cycle of, of readings from the Torah and from the prophets. Uh, a good example of it is... Um, uh, a, a portion of the Torah from the Book of Numbers called Matot, and, which means tribes. And um, mm-hmm. I will flip a page good. here yeah. as your editor takes it out. No, that's and, good. Oh, and, and I, the, I the Book of Numbers yeah.
0: absolutely is one of those books that modern people don't know what to do with. Well... You
1: know, it's 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 a wonder. there are wonderful stories in yeah. the Book of Numbers, and it's you know it's the story of the wilderness, mm-hmm. and it's all it it's the formation really of the faith. Yes. Uh, whereas in Exodus, you know, we have this 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 the miracle that brings about the survival of 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 the tribe. In Numbers, we really have the establishment of a people in a way that mm-hmm. um, we don't elsewhere. Uh, let me. This is in. the, um, I shall find this because it's a very, very good passage, and there are things that um, there's something that I'd like to read actually because I think it gives you. Um, yeah.
0: No, take your time. A bit
1: of my my um, the, just the the personal aspect of confrontation okay. in this. Um, Yikes! I have a copy at home, which I have, which is well thumbed and marked, and this one is. Uh, uh, ah, here we are! I think Good. we're getting to it here. Um,
0: are you reading from the Book of Customs or from the Bible? Yes, I'm going okay.
1: to read from it. Uh, yes, no, mm-hmm. it, it quotes from some biblical mm-hmm. passage, but. Um, Lord Almighty! Sorry. Uh,
0: where is it? I'm just curious um, where you what you're reading from, which part of the book.
1: Uh, I'm looking for it. Okay. Um, um, just uh, momentarily. Let me know when you get there. Okay. I shall do so. Um, <laughs> it will. It will appear momentarily. Uh, here we are. We're getting to it. Here. Hmm. Let me just look in the back. I will find it. Uh, numbers. Numbers. It's thirty chapter. Thirty-seven, I think it begins. Um, uh, yes, here it is. Okay. One eighty-one, 180, eighty-two. Rather, there. Here we go. Um, um, the reading it switches back to it. it well, the reading is a very interesting one because it begins with, uh, as a lot of things in Leviticus and Numbers and in Deuteronomy, uh, with legal matters. Mm -hmm. And uh, though this um, particular reading, which is Numbers 30 uh, verse 2 to 32 uh, verse 42, uh, is Uh, It begins with uh, laws about vows and sworn oaths, and in particular, um, uh, vows taken by women. And then it goes on to a very troubling episode. God instructs the Israelites to destroy the Midianites, a a tribe, uh, for having lured some of Israel into sinfulness. And it first... The large Israelite force destroys only the adult males. And Moses is utterly furious. He commands them to go back and destroy all the male children and women except those who are virgins. And he instructs them on the dispositions of the um, disposition of the Midianites' property. And um, what we have here is something I think really quite discomforting, because mm-hmm. the threat posed by the Midianites is not military but cultural. Uh, they threatened the Israelites with temptation, and to give this chapter a facile explanation, or to ignore it, or to not remember it, is, uh, or to suggest, as is often the case, that it represented the behavior and values of an olden time, during which monotheism was under attack, is, I think, uh, a very dangerous simplification, because such slaughters are carried out in our time with numbing frequency, invariably by people with the belief that their actions are a form of purification or of Mm -hmm. cleansing. And yet, um, they usually have very little success in staving off these polluting ideologies. And I mention in the book that um, uh, during the Cold War, a number of very influential political scientists, including Henry Kissinger... Uh, concluded in the early 1950s that the Soviet Union would prevail because of its cultural persistence, that it was somehow more robust than the permissive pluralism of the West. But he was wrong, and they were wrong. And uh, in fact, um, we wonder, though, so what do we make of it? Um, Is this not some form of ethnic cleansing that's being commanded? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, it, it may well be. And but I think that what we have to do is read it and confront it and remember it. And this, to me, was, you know, these things were just remarkable. I was, um, uh, I think, forever changed by the fact that the regular confrontation with these things is um, a very powerful thing.
0: Hmm. Well, Read me the passage. This is from Numbers, right? Would you? Would you, uh, I, I,
1: you? I, you know, I, I actually okay. just paraphrased it for oh, you. Oh, all right. I'm sorry. Okay. I... I I, I well, no. pretty much paraphrased okay. what was on the page. But that's great. Uh, there, I mean, are th- yeah. there was another one that mm-hmm. I thought was uh, – in fact, it does have passages that I can read, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, something about – oh, uh, the it, it's warnings on the um, – it's right before the month of Av. I will find it. And we
0: can, we can do that too. We can have readings from the passages if it seems right in the production when we put when we this Yes,
1: reader. this is it. It's from the month of Tammuz before of This is in the, the, the um, uh, readings from the prophets that are before the Tishba of... Um, excuse me. Um, um, I thought that... In there, you know, what ideas we confront in the course of the biblical readings in the Jewish year uh, that are so remarkable. And I thought that um, none seem so much part of, of, of our lives as these passages in, in Jeremiah. And I write here that. Um, uh, Reading Jeremiah, one wonders whether uh, this is – the Israelites are being chided mm-hmm. and they're, they're being told that – being warned by Jeremiah of what's to come because of their uh, inability to follow commandments. They're forgetting of all of these commandments and um, whether there'll ever be a reconciliation. And uh, I write, there is throughout the feeling of a marriage gone bad – The bittersweet remembrances of better days that will never be relived, the recitation of offenses, the talk of recriminations, and the maybe hollow offer of another chance, more anger, and finally collapse. The metaphor of Jeremiah is the poetry of divorce, and here from Jeremiah chapter 2. I remember the unfailing devotion of your youth, the love of your bridal days, when you followed me in the wilderness through a land unsown. Israel was then holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. But then the, these sweet memories turned to accusations how well you pick your way in search of lovers. Why, even the worst of women can learn from you. If a man puts away his wife and she leaves him, and if she becomes another's, may he go back to her again? You can have played the harlot with many lovers. Can you come back to me?" And then mm-hmm. there are two wives here. There's there's the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah. The two had split some years before each, of course, with her own issues. And uh, somehow apostate Israel is less to blame, that's the northern kingdom, less to blame than the faithless woman Judah, the the kingdom of Judah being centered in Jerusalem. And God says to Jeremiah um, uh, with the first that there might be some chance for reconciliation. Come back to me, apostate Israel. I will no longer frown on you. My love is unfailing. I will not be angry forever. Only you must acknowledge your wrongdoing. And then, but for the second wife, Judah, a scorching wind from the high bare places in the wilderness sweeps down upon my people. No breeze for winnowing or for cleansing, a wind too strong for these. And then... They were destroyed by Assyria in it, and and by Babylon, and it was a very long, hard fall. Uh, then, of course, you know, you come across these liturgies that are um, a part of the year's readings, uh, that that are, uh, you know, all of the. Um, um, All of the promises of um, reconciliation, Uh, it's it's just um, uh, quite the opposite. And so in Isaiah, uh, late Isaiah, Isaiah 55, uh, there's even the offer of free lunch if you come back. It says, uh, uh, come, all of you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost, uh, without cost. Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest fare. And then, of course, there's a great irony, a tragic irony in this because there is the promise in this prophecy. Tyranny will be far from you. Indeed, nothing will you fear and terror will not come near you. Indeed, uh, if it were only so.
0: I wonder if we could, um, I'd like to talk about about this season we're in, or this season we will soon be in, and this observance of Hanukkah. Yes. Which I think maybe is better known superficially, or some of the trappings of Hanukkah are more in the American popular imagination than many other Jewish observances. But yes. I'd love to know what you, how you think differently about Hanukkah, the meaning of it, the observance through this project, through getting into this book of customs.
1: I was surprised by Hanukkah because, mm. of course, it was uh, the name of a holiday that I probably knew first in my life and uh, with all of the promises of wonderful gifts and so on. Um, but I later, um, as a as a cynical teenager, came to think of it as um, not much more than Christmas envy. Right. I thought that this was this was really the that um, that the, the holiday had been so adapted to the commercial season of Christmas that it was pretty far from its original meaning. But um, having to write this. Uh, and describe the customs of Hanukkah, I realized that, um, well, I realized something interesting. I realized that in the old customs books, uh, even going back to Rabbi Isaac Tiernell in the late 14th century, um, uh, that, uh, and certainly in the first early printed customs books from Venice in the 1590s, that uh, Hanukkah was a big deal. Hmm. Uh, it had been. Um, so it's not something it re- just
0: that modern Americans had taken out of context. Yes. Oh. That's okay. right. Uh-huh. Even
1: though, even though it should be remembered that it is considered. Re- Religiously, a minor holiday. It's Mm -hmm. a minor festival, but nonetheless, it it borders on the major leagues, and it does so in a number of liturgical ways that are interesting. Which is the great psalms of praise, uh, the Hallel, from which we get the word Hallelujah, of course, Mm. and uh, that these are said in their entirety during Hanukkah, and one doesn't do that in minor holidays altogether, but Hanukkah has that, and um, that. The lesson of how—I imagined how important Hanukkah was for Jews over the centuries, Jews who had very little to show for but the occasional success and great failings and failures and and troubles and persecutions. But Hanukkah was uh, the story of a victory and rather Mm -hmm. one that lasted for a long time. Overcoming
0: of a persecution.
1: That's right. Mm-hmm. It was um, that. That's exactly right. Yeah, tell so that story. What, tell
0: the story of the Maccabees. I, I, yeah. Well,
1: I shall. It mm-hmm. was um, at the end of the Greek rule in the years about 165 BC or BCE, as uh, Jews prefer to say, before the Common Era. Um, uh, there was a split of the the Greek dynasty. There had been a split of the Greek dynasty, and um, what we had was. Um, uh, the Syrian government of the Seleucid dynasty had taken over, and they were very, very strong on assimilation. So um, Antiochus the the king, had insisted that the Jews give up all of their ways, including the covenant, the circumcision, and that uh, and many had gone along with this, but the rule became harsher and harsher nonetheless. So, One of the priests, Mattathias, from a group called the Hasmoneans, had revolted against this. He had had his followers say that we... Reject these um, the rule of Antiochus and his son Judah, who was called Maccabee, which is from the Hebrew word makabah where is hammer, mm. and uh, it became a, a brilliant soldier and defeated um, the uh, Antiochus. And for the next um, uh, years, until in fact um, Israel fell to the Romans in 63 BC, uh, this um, dynasty of the Hasmoneans, the Jewish dynasty of Hasmoneans, had ruled. And it was a rather uh, great and prosperous period. So it's it time that people point back to as a moment of great pride in which it's really the last time that uh, there is much self-governance. There's a period after, actually, a very short period. But um, this was a time of great pride. So over the years, it's taken on somewhat different meanings. And uh, for the repressed, of course, it's a great memory. In 1948, with the founding of the state of Israel, it took on, of course, entirely different uh, a connotation. <laughs> that this, that this strong Jewish soldier, this hammer, uh, somehow was revived and came back to life. Nonetheless, in the American sense of this um the it has a rather interesting history and it really does parallel the history of of christmas observance in this country so as as christmas became more and more of a public observation and i i think i When I've are
0: looked, we yeah what uh, years are we talking what we're we're talking
1: mid nineteenth century, okay. and it reaches it starts to reach a kind of um, something we would really recognize in the eighteen sixties, in the period after the American Civil War. Uh, by eighteen by the eighteen forties, you have in England um, the tradition of. Christmas cards begins, and this is followed in America in a big way. And in fact, the great Boston lithographer—he was the he ran the greatest lithography shop in, I think, all of America. A man named Louis Prang, uh, who was Jewish, and from whom, uh, and after whom, a street is named in Boston, um, had cultivated the commercial Christmas card. Um, The growing Jewish population of the time was certainly not to be left out of this. And they began um, following all of these Christmas events with Hanukkah events. And I have, in fact, in front of me an advertisement from a newspaper. It's dated Tuesday. This is advertising an event called Grand Revival of the Jewish National Holiday of Hanukkah at the Academy of Music in New York Tuesday. Tuesday, December 16, 1879 and it's sponsored by the Young Men's Hebrew Association, the YMHA, which exists to this day in New York mm. and uh, with in fact flourishes more greatly than ever and it says in this ad, the greatest Jewish event chronicled in post biblical history, the recollection of which ever awakens the true Jewish spirit and patriotism will be celebrated. And it, you wonder post-biblical history. Well, indeed, uh, the book of um, Maccabees, the uh, which are part of the. Jewish books of Apocrypha, Maccabees 1 and 2, I I believe there are four altogether that are counted in the Christian Apocrypha. These are uh, the books that didn't make it into the canon, the the later books of the Bible, and uh, um, some of which, are, most of which, are shared by Jews and Christians in a sort of subsidiary role. (laughs) Um, This is where the story of that becomes Hanukkah is mentioned. But Hanukkah, and the celebrated for eight days commemorates an event not in the book of Maccabees, but one rather uh, explained in the Talmud, written some hundreds of years later. (laughs) And, uh, And what it is, is a story of how when the temple was reclaimed, the temple had been greatly defiled by Antiochus and that uh, it, it had been turned into a pagan shrine. And uh, in repurifying, rededicating the temple, and indeed in this word dedication, we have the definition of Hanukkah. Hanukkah means dedication. Mm. And uh, so we have here this great event being remembered. And um, it was only um, a matter of time before, uh, of course, it would become part of the winter solstice celebration that it would Mm. be – Transferred to that time of year, uh, and the, so the story of Hanukkah is semi-biblical. You might say it comes part from uh, the the apocrypha and part from Talmudic story. Mm. And but that did I get to the part of the eight days, the oil no, lasting no. eight Wait, days? So oh, I'm sorry, I, I blew it. No, 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 uh, that's I mean, all
0: right. But with that with all right. The, right. I'll pick and it the, up. The eight days, uh, and that's the, the, the eight light days. imagery yes. of Hanukkah. As
1: yes. As the temple is rededicated, they look for light, for oil, for the lamp that must be in front of the Holy of Holies. The same lamp, of course, that's in front of the scrolls of Torah in in front of the ark in every synagogue, the eternal light. And uh, uh, they found a vial of purified oil, pure olive oil, uh, that would last only for a day uh, and indeed, this, according to the Talmudic story, this la- the oil lasts for eight days, and this is the um, um, uh, the story behind the eight days of Hanukkah. Uh, quite an interesting one.
0: Mm-hmm. And that is sort of that is relived in Jewish homes. That that eight days.
1: It, yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, but it's interesting. Um, before um, things had become, as things were becoming Americanized. Uh, there was an uh, interesting competition between Hanukkah and Christmas. This 1879 event was, uh, uh, it, though notable for sure, uh, didn't exactly cement the position of of Hanukkah. So, uh, in fact, in the Jewish Daily Forward, um, which was a Yiddish newspaper, right. um, it, it asks um, in 1904. Who says we haven't been Americanized? The purchase of Christmas gifts is one of the first things that proves one is no longer a greenhorn. And uh, uh, though Kaufman Kohler, uh, uh, one of the great figures, one of the two greatest figures of Reform Judaism in the 19th century, wrote in 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 English in 1890 saying, how can the Jew, without losing self-respect, partake in the joy and festive mirth of Christmas? Can he, without self-surrender, without entailing insult and disgrace upon his faith and race, plant the Christmas tree in his household? And it's, and then he adds, how humble and insignificant does one appear by the side of the other, referring to Hanukkah compared to Christmas. Hmm. And, and indeed, uh, there has always been this sense of Hanukkah being in truth, still in all, Notable though it is and touching though it is, a minor holiday, and certainly not of a, hol- a holiday of the exact standing of Christmas. Right. Nonetheless, <laughs> it's not without something.
0: Well, you know, I once uh, spoke with, a, I've had this very vivid memory of a conversation I had with a nine year old girl, a Jewish girl. Who said to me quite matter of factly that, you know, she said, Hanukkah gets so much attention because it's compared to Christmas and it's sort of competing with Christmas. You know, she experienced yes. that and was able to articulate it. And she said she thought uh, it should not get as much attention and that, you know, that she made the point that other holidays are much more significant and felt that they should be emphasized more somewhere, somehow um, externally. I'm sort of hearing you want want to say well there's something in hanukkah after all
1: there's something in hanukkah after all but indeed um there's not as much in hanukkah as there are in the days and and that are perhaps less well known mm-hmm. there's of course of that I mentioned yes. before, which you know is the only full fast day, full fast, twenty-four hour fast day, beside Yom Kippur, okay. and there is of course the 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 feast of of Tabernacles, Sukkot, which yes. takes place in uh, days after Yom Kippur, and and the days that are that come at the end of Sukkot, of, of Sheminiyat, we're called Sheminiyat Seret, and the delightful holiday of Simcha Torah, at which the Torah scrolls are fi- the the. Full cycle of readings comes to an end, the scrolls are rolled back, and the readings begin again within the beginning. And uh, this is, you know, a marvelous holiday, one in which traditionally children were usually brought to the synagogue and that candy was thrown at them. And indeed, in the book of the old books of customs, in the wonderful woodcuts, uh, there's a picture of, of adults throwing candy to children on Simchat Torah. And uh, Uh, There is the holiday of the middle pilgrimage holiday. There are three great pilgrimage holidays in the Hebrew uh, calendar. And there is Passover, of Mm -hmm. course, the first. And then there is Shavuot, which is Pentecost. And um, uh, another day that I must say is somewhat difficult for modern Jews to find much meaning in. Because of Christianity's
0: appropriation of that in a way. Um, no, not
1: so much. I think that there's not so much a recognition of that, is that that I think that there are aspects of Shavuot which just seem obscure because they have to do so much with temple sacrifice. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Judaism is a religion that changed dramatically. And, you know, with the destruction of the Second Temple in AD 70, um, there was forever the end of, uh, well, I shouldn't say forever. There are people out there who pray for the return of them. For what reason, I can't imagine, but they do. Uh, for Came the end of the temple sacrifices. Hmm. And Judaism was a, a religion, the observance was not a liturgical one so much as it was one of contributions to a, an ongoing sacrifice uh, that took place every day at the temple. And there were special additional uh, sacrifices as well, and of, of animals and grain and so on, uh, which are described, of course, in the um, uh, uh, in the Book of Numbers and, and, and Leviticus in some great detail, and Exodus as well. All of these things are 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 you know very obscure. And then in AD seventy, um, the uh, uh, Pharisaic. Judaism that had already taken root, and 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 from whose tradition Jesus had come, uh, the um, had, it, Judaism was already turning little by little into a liturgical religion in which um, the um, observance of God's commandments was done through liturgy rather than through sacrifice, mm-hmm. and that it was uh, one did this as individuals rather than as temple priests doing this on behalf of all the people. So uh, geographically, this was becoming more and more a necessity as the population grew and dispersed.
0: And how is that meaningful for you as a 21st century person? Or how do you incorporate that into your identity, your religious identity? Well,
1: um, do you mean the sacrifices? Yeah, the...
0: And just, yes, and also this transition that you described and what it has meant to be Jewish and to, to worship, in fact. Well,
1: I, I think for me, um, the the end of the sacrifices and thinking about the sacrifices is a um, certainly a definitive way in which I say um, we have changed. And uh, the idea of the return of these things which by the way is is in the traditional version of one of the prayers that said in every single day um, uh, as part of this sort of central score of mm. of Jewish liturgy uh, this group of, of 19 um Um, benedictions that are known as the Amida. Amida means standing, and and it's the standing prayer. Uh, There's a thing called the Avodah, which is, you know, a prayer for the return of um, uh, the sacrifices and the rebuilding of the temple. And this rebuilding of the temple, of course, figures in a great, you know, tremendous amount of Jewish liturgy. But um, what does it mean to me? It Mm -hmm. means that... um, um well, I believe I think as classical reform Judaism does personally that 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 um, this is something that happens within. We rebuild our temple within our sacrifices take forms of that are symbolic, not of uh, burning animal fat on the fire. And um, there are those of course who believe otherwise uh, I I, you know, there are divisions in Jewish belief, and I think that that's one in which um uh, I would venture to say that there are very few people pining away for the return of 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 the burning of animals, but there are indeed some
0: and and I'll you know just you you' mentioned the prayer and the many prayers that are spoken daily and I, and I will say that sort of picking up your book, the Book of Customs, um which in some ways presents. Customs of Jewish life narratively and as commentary, rather than being a, it's not a prayer book, right? It's not like the Book of Common right. Prayer and Episcopal Word, which is which lists prayers. But, but you, but at the same time, you almost get an overwhelming sense of prayer upon prayer upon prayer, right? In a Jewish yes. life, that is pre- yes. presented, and uh, and and there's something. Uh, in that, that I, it's it's hard to square that with a modern idea of daily life, and it, you know, I just wonder, yes. has this changed the way you structure your days and your time and your weeks and months? Well,
1: um, I, I, I think for me, it's it's rather difficult because I, my work, all of my work, as a book designer and book uh, producer. Um, is has revolved around Jewish life in one or Jewish history in one form or another over many years, and um, so I would say that um, if there are three prayer services every day, I probably do six, and and uh, only because I'm surrounded by it, you know, very mm-hmm. much all the time. And so, did this change my life? Well, indeed, yes, it did. Um, um, but uh, that. Because my whole, most people, of course, their exposure to prayer is, well, if they pray at home, it's one thing, but they go to the synagogue service, which is encouraged, and um, uh, it, it, their work does not permit them to do this. So in my case, it's rather unusual because. My work is really all about this, Mm -hmm. so um, I'm not I'm not altogether sure that I'm a a good exemplar. But did you did you
0: incorporate prayer in a different way uh, in the process of creating this particular book and in this project?
1: Mm -hmm. I had to believe that it was worthy. Okay. you know that, that 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 this was the structure of the old customs books this is indeed uh, that even though as you say this is not a prayer book it is a kind of digest of a prayer book mm-hmm. just as it's also a digest of non of, of of actions of of things that are part of the of custom, and uh, also things that are part of Jewish law, and and things that are the that, that a digest of the readings from the Bible, uh, which this book includes all a digest of all of the readings of the from of the year's cycle. So,
0: um, and you know, you uh, yes, you... it's
1: a lot of prayer. It's a great <laughs> deal of prayer, and there are prayers for everything. And this Correct. is, of course, what happens with you know three th- thirty. F- uh, f- a religion which is many millennia old now, so there's a great pile-up of this material, and... Um Yes, there's a tremendous amount, and that's what Judaism is really all about. It's about these um, moments, that these times of the day that are taken out, that are given over to God, that are you know, and one at which one says these things. Now I'll tell you a, a funny story. I I was last week in New York, and I had a meeting at Sotheby's, the great auction house, mm-hmm. and uh, the meeting was to follow a Judaica auction, an auction of manuscripts, and uh, because my meeting was with their um, curator of, of such things. And um, most of the people at this auction were Hasidic Jews, uh, men dressed in black with hats and beards and side locks and so on. And, uh, but at the end of this prayer, um, at the end of the auction, came time for afternoon prayers. And so they all went to the eastern corner of the room and uh, began their recitation of the afternoon prayers, which, if you read even in digest form in my in my book, uh, it seems to go on for a little while. But I can assure you this. Spe- with which these guys got through <laughs> all their prayers was like lightning, so that the amount of time they actually spent on the afternoon prayer service was... It was six minutes tops. And uh, so, uh, you know, to read in longhand all of this stuff is one thing, and to live this as it's lived on the ground mm-hmm. is sometimes another. Though, uh, you know, even at a... At a um, you know, at any observant synagogue in which the entire Sabbath morning service uh, is is said, after which is followed with an additional service for Sabbath, um, th- it's a very long thing. I mean, it it can mm-hmm. go on for the better part of four hours and three and a half if you get off quick, depending on the readings for the day, and or the rabbi's sermon. And it is, you know, it it's um, there's a Yiddish expression. Uh, that Jews say among themselves often uh, with a certain amount of chuckle and it's schwer zu sein aid. it's 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 hard to be a Jew and indeed in that respect it certainly is
0: okay this burden of prayer is heavy <laughs> all right, well, Yes. And, all right and you you do as you said also in the book of customs you do you do talk about the biblical passages the torah portions that are used and reflected on in the in the various um um, at seasons of Jewish life and and I wanted to ask you I, I did not know actually that the, that the Torah portions the readings of the Torah for the Hanukkah season are the generations of Isaac and all the stories around Isaac is that right and well
1: I, I should explain okay. that that um, the in order to present a give people a feeling for the customs of the jewish here mm-hmm. i had to do something which was a sort of a radical step and that was i created a model year in which i placed all of the readings in specific months according to a calendar but i warned the reader and uh, and i warned the listeners that the readings the reading schedule varies somewhat okay. every year. And the Jewish life occurs over a 19-year cycle. And so it's it, it's a very... Um, how much does it vary? Well, it's not gigantic. So, in fact, even though, uh, as you say, that during Hanukkah, that there are these readings regard Isaac in this, those might actually get shoved into the next month okay. in some years. Right. But it's not going to be off by more than a few weeks. All right. Uh, you see, seven times... In a in this 19 year cycle or is it nine times in a 17 year cycle uh, no it's 19 year cycle um, there are we supernumerary years years in which a 13th month is added so it, it gets a it's a very complicated business and this is how the um, um, the the cal, the Jewish calendar Sort of uh, jibes with the um, solar calendar. Uh, it's often said that, that uh, the calendar of Judaism is a lunar calendar. That's not true. Hmm. It's an adjusted lunar calendar. It's a kind of lunisolar <laughs> oh, no. calendar. Right, I mean, you
0: we've completely and, lost me.
1: But... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whereas the Islamic calendar, that really is it's a lunar a calendar. Right. Yes, and that's why Ramadan moves, you know, over the Quite course of the cycle. Yes. Yes. All yes. right.
0: So, so the so the Isaac's stories are not necessarily. Uh, connected to Hanukkah, they may always be somewhat, have some proximity to Hanukkah.
1: I mean, That's correct. I,
0: I mean, I'd love to talk to you about them anyway, just as an example of how you yes. get into the meaning of Scripture and the workings of Scripture in, in yes. your sort of overview, examination of, of uh, Jewish custom. Because as you point out, the, the stories, I mean, this is Isaac, um, and his sons Jacob and Esau, which is this great rivalry, and in fact, that whole extended family is, as you point out, just full of—you call them ambiguous characters. You know, it's, they're all connivers, uh, including yes. Jacob, who is the great ancestor yes. of Israel. Um, I just, I, I, yeah, talk to me about did you did you discover stories like that in a different way as you got into them in the context of of, liter- of worship and custom.
1: Yes. Uh, in fact, it's the part of the book that I um, I, I most loved working on, mm. and uh, it was certainly the most meaningful, and I couldn't wait to be... To try and digest one part and move on to the next. I mean, it was just it was, or I should say, the opposite. That I, I was, I felt almost mournful to be finished with this these synopses hmm. that I so much love living with them all the time and living with the, of course, the entirety of it. And uh, yes, they are remarkably they're real people. You know, yeah. they're utterly ambiguous, three dimensional,
0: uh, flawed. Yes, yes, I
1: mean, well, Jacob, you know, who is is is. Is uh, you know is indeed you know an incredible conniver, and yeah. uh, he tricks his brother uh, for his birthright. He tricks his blind father. Into for his blessing in this and dressing in goat skin, no less, (laughs) nor some kind of skin, to convince his father that he, the smooth Jacob, is in fact the hairy Esau in this. Uh, What was also remarkable to me was that how in the um, cycle of, uh, as the Bible developed, that uh, Esau from being adult in the book of Genesis, you know, a kind of... um, uh, uh, well, I don't want to draw parallels with political candidates, but <laughs> it, it, it's it's. And, 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 well, I go on. Passé pass, <laughs> pass by, by the time this. Uh, All right. Yes, and no, of course, <laughs> no. Uh, Esau uh, is, you know, be, is this. Just a hunter, you know, he's an outdoorsman. He's a guy with no time for subtleties or for meaning, Mm -hmm. in fact. And he will sell his birthright for a gulp of soup because he thinks he's, or stew, and he thinks that he's, you know, that his. Being famished from being out in the field is, you know, that if he keeps on being famished, he'll, he, he thinks he'll die. So he'll sell anything to his brother, including his birthright. Uh, but Jacob is, of course, you know, uh, this is Jacob's first great act of conniving. He goes on, of course, to, uh, uh, to connive another conniver mm-hmm. and which is of course dealing with um uh, dealing with um his two wives who have been given unto him by by Laban his
0: father uh, well, conniving father
1: yes it's yes. it's his his well yes it's his aunt, his father-in-law and and uh, the his uncle sure. and uh his his mother's brother and uh he, in fact, winds up as, as Laban tries to give him a very raw deal on livestock that he might take with him. Uh, Jacob manages to turn this around in such a way that... Uh, Laban is left with nothing but old and dying livestock I mean it's really it it it, it the story itself kind of turns on a bit of superstition which is that um, a, um, a an animal's coloration is the result of that which its mother sees last before its birth and uh, <laughs> but nonetheless uh, but we I think what's more interesting in this story of of Isaac and his sons is that Esau, whose people become known as the Edomites, the red people, the red ones, mm. and this is comes from this uh, uh, something in, in Genesis um, in, in, as Esau the famished comes to Jacob and says, give me some of that red stuff to gulp down. I'm famished. Mm. And so he's forever known as Edom and the Edomites, and the Edomites become the uh, uh, one of the um, several biblical epitomes of evil, mm-hmm. and that Esau's seed from Esau goes from being this this dolt, and a harmless dolt, because when Jacob returns, in fact, o- o- upon the death of his father, and he returns to. His father's land, uh, and he confronts Esau out in the field. He sees him coming from a distance. He's scared to death about this confrontation. He thinks that surely Esau will will slay him and 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 his his wives and children, and that. Um, but nothing of the kind happens. Esau embraces him. In fact, and uh, so Jacob's fear is all for naught. Um, and, and this is preceded by the great wrestling scene, of course, which somehow presages this, where Jacob
0: um, wrestles with the angel, or who's a messenger yes. of God, or God self. It's not clear. Yes, mm-hmm.
1: but but the genealogy of Esau is an interesting one because yes. from him come out all of the symbols of evil in the Bible. And and you have,
0: yeah, you have this sentence, this concluding, very, I think, very haunting (sighs) sentence, in the old books, the bloodlines of good and evil are the same as they are always.
1: Yes, of course, exactly. (laughs) They are brethren, aren't they?
0: Mm. And, and, you know, I mean, to, to, to me, that's such a wonderful example of the kind of observation about human nature and sort of the largest questions of our world that can come out of reading these stories, which on first glance are very strange. And yes, <laughs> full of um, flawed characters uh,
1: <laughs> full of, full of flawed characters. There's nothing strange about them at all.. <laughs> That's I, mean, true. A, I mean, they're the most familiar stories that we have, mm-hmm. and uh, because they're about us and all of us. And um, it, it's you know, it's very, very difficult to ever move away from it. So um, approaching this as uh, uh, approaching this entire project, as my first being sort of a literary approach and trying to understand what does this stuff say because this is what I was after. um, It was, I tried to keep, um, well some critical faculty alive while reading it, that it wasn't just about devotion, but it was also about knowing what it said, because mm-hmm. the only real devotion that I could find is by knowing those things, mm-hmm. and by having a feeling for this, and that things are not just a world of good people and evil doers, and it's not that simple, and it's it's, it's amazing to me how many people who, who um, take it upon themselves to quote a lot of Bible seem to think that the Bible has is all black and white and um, what I see in front of me is a great deal of um yes there is some black and white but there's in fact a gr- more gray than anything else
0: um you you wrote uh early in 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 the book you wrote that you you said what can a post Freudian person like me find in such things and I wonder what you mean when you use that adjective post Freudian and you know you, you just said to me that you uh you tried to to keep a critical edge and at the same time to be looking for meaning um to approach the texts with some of the devotion that they sort of require I mean did you find that a struggle in fact?
1: um less so than i thought mm-hmm. um I, and and what I mean by post Freudian is in fact um, um someone who um, believes in latter-day strategies and of, of of psychoanalysis, but in fact taking in. in to account that this sort of self-examination has become forever more part of um, the Western world, and that um, you know Freud defines us in in for ourselves in many respects, but the post-Freudian way is of course not to look at at dreams as symbols of actions, but to actually look at meaning for what it is, and uh, the uh, it. it I find this, um, I thought that that would be, uh, in fact, ex- exclusive, that it would prevent me that
0: it would get from in the way. getting
1: close. It mm-hmm. would get in the way. It mm-hmm. would prevent me from getting close to the meaning of it. And, in fact, it did the opposite. Uh, I thought this is, you know, it's the old case that, that, uh, you know, science can bring you closer to god not the other way around mm-hmm. and it's it's you know one is always dazzled by the wonder of it all and the fact that it exists and the fact that we have these exchanges and the fact that we uh uh you know that we're not all together this or that but we're lots of things and it's it's um um it felt it, it feels real to me
0: mm-hmm. well then also i think uh, when you talk about when you when you define it that way as part of your pros Post-Freudian sensibility is 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 thinking about self-examination. When you you spoke earlier about how that is the sense that you the deepest sense that you found in some of even some of the violent um, yes. texts of the Hebrew Bible.
1: Yes, that we have. Um, um uh, well, you know, there's there's this character of this of God, you know, who's this sometimes really kind of a bad boy with a short temper, and you know, about to throw in the towel of, and just you know destroy all of them, and you know, Moses holds him back time after time, and it, it's it's a really remarkable thing, and then you realize that you know. Uh, without Moses um, and we don't have Moses anymore it's sort of between us and God to hold back these bad tendencies so there's even you know well getting to a much more symbolic um, uh, understanding of it that it's there is no meat one of the messages of the torah is that, that that there is no mediator anymore it's between us and god and us and ourselves and so without this self-examination this post-freudian self-examination it's very difficult to um see in these stories um very much meaning i think
0: mm. what in this season or in the season of of hanukkah um that's coming up what 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 is the character of God that you're reflecting on? That's You know, because I, I think those stories are more about the Jewish people, as you said, about the temple. But what is the character of God that is at the forefront of the traditions and the rituals of Hanukkah?
1: Um, oh, boy, is that a good question. And I wish I had a good answer for it. Mm-hmm. And I, I think the one that I have is one that I don't really want to share. And it's 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 too... Personal, and you see, I have come to sort of think about things of the places where God might not be anymore, and so I, I, oh, you don't want to broadcast that. It's, it's just we can broadcast
0: uh, that. That's a place. That's a thought <laughs> other people have. I, I'd really be yes, interested no, we, if you wouldn't mind sharing it. I...
1: Sure. Um, I wonder in this act of rededicating the temple, in in all of this. If um, one wonders at that end of that period uh, when the Romans uh, under Titus had carted out all of the temple implements. In fact, in Rome to this very day, you see on the Arch of Titus that incredible scene of, of uh, you know, the, the spoils of war. And the spoils of war were the temple menorah and all of these things that were remade by the um, or ostensibly remade by the Hasmoneans under um, uh, uh, Judah Maccabee and uh, the the originals some of the originals having been destroyed and you wondered in a way in all of that uh, if, if Oh, I wonder whether God was still in that place anymore, and and I I don't like thinking about God as the person who let His house just uh, be destroyed like all that, and one thinks of these thoughts of 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 abandonment and being left on one's own to make one's own decision, and in a way uh, appreciating all the more these stories of God and of of, of these people. Uh, because of that. And uh, I I sound somewhat superstitious in saying this, uh, but it's something I actually think about uh, from time to time, and and, um, uh, not daily, uh, but on occasion. And I think that when one thinks about Scripture and about liturgy, that inevitably, you know, you you just wonder about... um, uh, the places God is and is not, and of course you know by definition, God is everywhere, but um, one wonders from time to time and that um, uh, are we dealing with God or just the memory of God uh, well if the memory is all that we have, we need that memory very badly um, but who can know
0: hmm. no I'm glad you thank you for saying that for um. I I want to, uh, I just have about one, one more question, but I, I want to ask my producers behind the glass if they have something. And uh, so I'm going to be quiet for a moment. And I'll be listening in my headphones. Go right ahead. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay, you know your book is called after the the older text that you are sort of recreating, the Book of of Customs, and it's about Jewish law in a, in a way. And those are words uh, that connote very different things for modern people. That I mean, in fact, aren't very useful, I think, for in a modern ear at getting at at in fact what you are describing here and compiling. I wonder. How do you think about those words, and why, even in our time, recreating this material in this form, and even calling it again the Book of Customs, felt right and important.
1: Uh, the words "custom" and "law" in this sense, uh, uh, "law" in Hebrew being called "halacha," and its um, and and "custom" is "minhag," "minhagim." Um, that they cross over in a rather um, complicated way because um, laws are customs often and customs are law, or become law sometimes. So it has this tail and dog relationship. So halacha is the dog and, and custom, minhag, is the tail, you might say. <laughs> so... Um,
0: but you know the words what? in our in our lingo, sort of in twenty first century America, they're so dry and they feel they so are. constricting and so narrow yes. and something that's yes. imposed from above, above and not yes. not a way you'd live your life. Or,
1: right, and right. and and you know, whereas the 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 con, the Hebrew context of of the word halacha is is is. To, to lead, uh, well, actually the word for custom is to lead, and and you know nahag. The, there's a um, the the sense of this, and and halach is the way, you know, a way to to. Um, uh, to find the way so <laughs> law in that sense is not law as injustice there's another hebrew word that covers that um which is din anyway let's do yeah. this again i'm sorry no, i'm no, not that's okay. getting Just, this well, i'm not sure i get the question uh, uh, no i, I love not... i
0: love where you're going with it so so it's the way and that's and that is the context that the the, the yes, meaning it, in which this is assembled
1: that's right mm-hmm. and and custom comes from the hebrew word to, to lead. And so you might say that custom is the leading edge of the law. Mm-hmm. And um, the law is interesting because, you know, there's there's the written law and the oral law. And uh, it's a tenet of Jewish belief that um, the Torah and the, um, as well as the earliest books of the earliest parts of the Talmud, which are called the Mishnah, mm-hmm. the, the, the rabbinic commentaries, that these were somehow all delivered together by God at, at Mount Sinai. I know it's a kind of historical, bizarre, uh, <laughs> you know, incongruity, uh, but indeed this is the, you know, the belief of tradition, and the belief is that the interpretation of the law. Is is uh, a legitimate activity uh, because it would be very difficult to lead a Jewish life, um, you know, if one didn't interpret these laws and weren't able to turn, for example, animal sacrifices into prayers mm-hmm. and and into a replacement for these things, which are no longer possible. And uh, all religions go through these modifications, you know, in one way or another. So. Um, Uh, It's strange, I always uh, wince a little or even chuckle when I hear um, you know, that it's said by, occasionally by rabbinical authorities, oh, you can't, this is the way it's always been done. Well, except when it wasn't. And, mm. and uh, you know, from before that time. So there's a, one might make a differentiation between, um, you know, God's law, the Torah law, and, and everything after, but, um, you know, it's not so easy to do even all of that. So, um, um I'm sorry, where where are we? That's okay. I
0: guess I just I, I wanna just ask you finally if there's a, we you know, this has been wonderful and we've covered lots and lots of ground, but I I do want to ask if there's anything I didn't ask you about or some aspect of this project that's been especially yeah, the, meaningful. Yeah. The
1: pictures. Yes. That, oh right. You know, yes. Yeah. Let's Talk do the pictures. People that. like yeah. to hear about yeah. pictures, yeah. Yeah. even on the radio. Right. Um the th- what attracted me first to the Book of Customs was these this these marvelous pictures that I discovered uh, because of that uh, that Sabbath picture that I had mentioned but also that there was this wonderful set of things and that I realized that between the years 1593 and by about 1770 there had been a an actual, visual vocabulary of Jewish life. And that this, that people love these cuts. They seem to repeat them again and again. They would recut them mm. and, and uh, you know, make various versions in slightly different sizes and so on. And this was a uh, just a wonderful thing. Now, there had been already by this time Similar illustrations in Passover Haggadahs, you know the the special um, book yes. that is read at the Passover mm-hmm. service and uh, the Passover dinner, the Seder, and um, the. Uh, so it was not such a stretch when these customs books came out, and in fact, in the world of Yiddish books that surrounded um, these wonderful books of customs, were illustrated Bible paraphrases and so on. There were a number of illustrated things. So, uh, uh, but nonetheless, so far as Jewish life and practice is concerned, this was the one and only. This, For for a very long time, for nearly 200 years, uh, this was the visual vocabulary of Jewish life, and that it vanished by that time. It was, you know, a kind of incredible surprise. And it's not as if some of them weren't known. I have seen various cuts reproduced here and there, but I believe this book is the very first to have the entire vocabulary Mm. since uh, uh, probably the um, uh, 1730s or so. Even by the time these cuts died out in the uh, 1770s, there were only a few being shown.
0: And and that was especially meaningful for you because you are a designer of books and a visual person. I mean, did you you even find these to supplement the The religious um, inspiration or the nourishment that you found in this project.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it was the thing that charmed me right away, Mm -hmm. and I was just taken by this. And I think because um, the Jewish history and relationship with with iconography and with the graven image is occasionally so uncomfortable that it is for us, or at least for me, uh, such a, a, a feeling of of pure joy discovering Jewish images that I had not seen before. Mm. That it becomes indescribable pleasure. It, it just it goes right down the spine, and I think that for many great Jewish artists, especially in the twentieth century, when they had the freedom and the marketplace in which to create works of art, that the outpouring of of, of visual creativity was just so extraordinary
0: hmm. and do you feel that I, I wonder if you think that being jewish and and expressing yourself visually um, does that take you in, in any kind of new way into the tradition or add something of what you bring to the tradition the eyes you bring to the tradition sort of a large um, question but
1: no I you know it's actually that's a great question and I I think that it does, unquestionably, because what I see as a designer is what I was able to see in these old customs books that had been ignored for so long, and um, that was that they were a remarkable piece of organization of Jewish information, of information, period. Mm -hmm. And this, of course, is one of the great things about all Jewish books. You have these works of gigantic typographic complexity of commentary on the commentary Mm -hmm. on the commentary, as one finds in Talmud, Mm -hmm. that just the physical quality of Talmud it becomes you know completely arresting to people who have not seen it before and utterly remarkable to those who know it well and um, so it, it sometimes takes a designer's eye I, I think to see jewels in places where uh, people haven't looked before because one of the things that that we know is is how what important it is, and how uh, much care was put into a book, even such a, though a minor book, in which someone went to the trouble to organize the information in very carefully made layers, very clearly presented to readers. And this is the joy of a book, you know, it's just mm. a tremendous pleasure. So, I, you know, I tried to actually do something in the English language context, which conveyed that same sense of, of level and of, uh, oh, I don't know, of just straightforward presentation, but with a sense of the history that it uh, had come from.
0: Okay. I, I think we're done. Thank you so much. Oh, all right. You're I, welcome. My producers want me oh. to ask you about... Yes. And we, we, we you know, we use a lot of music in, in the program, and we use, yes. try to use it a, a, appropriate to the subject. And, I mean, I wonder if there's music... Uh, that comes to mind for you. I know earlier you talked about the Harvard Hillel songbook. And, uh, you know, where would you want us to look for music that would surround your thoughts and your voice and stories?
1: uh, I shall tell you. uh, Mm -hmm. The place to look, because it's the thing that I go to at some great length to mention in here, is in some of the Jewish um, uh, um, cantatas. They're actually liturgical works uh, that were composed by Salomone Rossi, R-O-S-S-I, and that's Salamone, S-A-L-A-M-O-N-E, and um, you will find these on a number. You have records, really, um, very much available. But right, I can right. email you a specific great. reference. And what you'll f- this is this is music from the era of of Claudio Monteverdi. And this is someone who knew Monteverdi and actually worked with Monteverdi in Mantua. Mm-hmm. And he was the great Jewish composer of the period. And it's it's probably at least in my mind the most meaningful and um, um, Jewish music that's ever been written on paper. And uh, it, it's really wonderful stuff. And it's certainly um, of the era of the original books.
0: Oh, that's terrific! That's just what we were looking for.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it'll make you'll find wonderful things that that are really good um, material for
0: it. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much. It's so lovely to meet you this way. Thank you, Krista. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Okay. Yeah. Thanks. thanks very much. Bye bye. Bye bye.